So I want to look at Psalm 16 this morning. We're going to be continuing on the series uh, that Andrew started as we began, as, as we were meeting online called Songs in the Darkness. And today um, I want to speak to you really about the, the battle for contentment, the battle for contentment. See, this psalm, Psalm 16, uh, Psalm 16 is, is really another song in the darkness. David is facing trouble. In fact, the first verse, he talks about preserve me, O God, for you, for in you I take refuge. He's longing for security and safety. And yet the psalm is full of declarations of joy. He says, I have a beautiful inheritance. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. And really what he's doing is modeling for us what it looks like to have contentment in suffering, a contentment despite the storms of life. He's modeling it for us, but also I think he gives us some really good keys for how we find contentment in the midst of a crisis. Let me read to you the psalm. It's Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen cup and and my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Really, I want to start by suggesting to you that this battle for contentment that this psalm speaks to is really the challenge of the moment. I think about some of you experiencing the frustrations of lockdown, of not being able to uh, see your family and friends, of not being able to eat or drink what you want, of losing quite a lot of your freedom. And and for some of us, we found that really hard. I I may just be speaking personally, but we recognize through this time of lockdown how much we're uh, addicted to the kind of pleasures of 21st century life. The great question is, how will we find contentment when the most precious things in our lives have been stripped away? Some of you are experiencing genuine suffering. Think about those of you who are experiencing financial loss. Maybe some of you already know that your contract won't be renewed or maybe you're, you're aware of the kind of impending financial crisis and therefore wondering about your own job and your own financial livelihood. Of course, some of you are facing the loss of a loved one. There is much genuine suffering being felt by our nation. And when you're going through suffering, the real question isn't why God? Often we think about suffering, you think the, the question we want to ask is, why is this happening to me? Actually, the real question of suffering is how? How will you endure through the crisis? How will you have the resilience and the faith to continue? And that's what this psalm is speaking to. And of course, many of us are the really the, probably the third and greatest enemy to our contentment is that many of us are affected by the, the news of suffering and death around us. Death hangs over our culture like a specter right now. As each day we see here, uh, news stories of death tolls of each one of those 
uh, lives lost represents a family who are grieving and, and it affects, affects all of us. If anything, it's an uncomfortable reminder of our fragility as human beings. And this psalm speaks specifically, it really answers the question, how can we have peace in view of the great enemy that is death? Gives us the great antidote to the fear of death that is surrounding us at the moment. And really, I think this kind of contentment, this resilience, this ability to uh, retain some level of joy in amidst all the struggles is really the defining mark of the Christian. In uh, Philippians 2, Paul describes it like this. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's describing the ability to weather any storm that comes against you. He's learned how to be happy in every circumstance. Because of his relationship with Christ, he has an unshakability, a joy that cannot be taken from him. And in fact, whether you're a Christian or not, I think this is really a, a really important question for life. It, it extends way beyond this crisis. It says, how will you find a freedom not to be mastered by your circumstances? How will you find a, a way not to be controlled by the ups and downs of life, by the different situations that you find yourself in? Or indeed, how will you find a way not to be controlled by the anxiety of what might happen to you in the future? This crisis, if anything, is a reminder that suffering is an inevitable part of life. Uh, one writer put it like this, suffering will ruin your life unless you learn how to deal with it. Whether we like it or not, we recognise that suffering is inevitability of the human experience. We need to learn how to find contentment in suffering. And this psalm really gives us three big keys to how to find a kind of robust, resilient contentment in the face of anything that life throws against us. It gives us three big ideas. One, don't run after your idols. Two, treasure Christ above all things. And three, find a hope or find the hope beyond death. I want to take you through each of these then. First of all, don't run after idols. Don't chase false gods. This psalm begins with really a declaration of exclusive loyalty to God. In, in verse two, he says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Effectively, effectively saying only you are my comfort in suffering. And this is precisely the, the really the essence of, of David's warning to us. In verse four, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. His warning to you is if you run after other gods, if you worship other things apart from God, or if you put other things above God, then actually that's no recipe for contentment. Your sorrows will multiply. You'll be unhappier. Of course, he's not just describing religion. If one writer put it like this, the human heart is an idol factory. Essentially saying we're all worshippers, whether we're religious or not. To worship something really is to say, this is the ultimate thing of my life. This is the thing that I value most. This is essential for my happiness. It might be career success. You dream about it. It becomes the, your worst nightmare is the idea of not being successful, of losing your job. It becomes the dominating desire of your life. Whether you realize it or not, you actually, it's a good thing, but you've, you've actually turned from just taking a good thing and actually now you're worshiping it. Your workplace, which probably is your desk at home right now, is, is your place of worship. 
or a romantic relationship, you think, I need to find that one person. The prospect of being without someone isn't just an uncomfortable idea to you, it's unthinkable. It becomes your primary desire. And life becomes impossible without the prospect of being with someone. Actually, without realizing it, you've started to worship the idea of being in a relationship. The reality of of the human heart is that we're forever building idols. We're ever taking good things and making many gods. And as David talks about here, running after them, pursuing them. But David's point is simply, if you worship these things, if you build your life about anything else that isn't God, actually that's a recipe for disaster. That will not bring you the contentment that you need. It will only lead to disappointment. And really what I'm speaking about here is that the fact that the crisis has revealed something of the, the fragility and even the, the kind of uh, insufficiency of our idols. I think this is exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing that as, as our society is shaken, the very things that our culture has worshipped and run after as pursued are much more fragile than we realised. Something of a wake-up call, really, in a way, for our society. That in a, in a moment, everything that you count precious can be taken away from you. You could spend your whole life pursuing your career as your ultimate ambition. You could sacrifice your friendships, your family time, your free time, uh, all about that goal. But then in an instant, a financial crisis hits and you lose your job and you can't find another one because lots of people have lost their jobs. The whole economy is affected. If you've made this your ultimate, if this made this your driving, abiding purpose in life, you'll be crushed. You'll feel like your life is destroyed. And because we know that the things that we worship are fragile, the things that we run after can be taken from us at any moment, it means actually rather than being a source of joy, actually there's a sense of insecurity in that, that they create deep anxiety in us as we fear their loss. I think this crisis also revealed the way that our idols can't save us. We uh, kind of, this kind of reveals something of a false sense of security that they give us. Think about money. Many of us pursue money because we think it gives us a sense of security. If I have enough money, I'll be able to navigate the challenges of life, of anything that comes um, against me. But of course, this virus has shown us that suffering is indiscriminate, that money is no real protection against suffering. It doesn't insulate us against the loss of a loved one or a difficult sickness. And like our careers, it could be lost in a moment. And so really, this crisis is forcing us as a nation to ask the difficult questions, to see that the things we put our hope in in a different light, that they're unable to protect us and more fragile than we realize. It's no surprise that many in our culture are reevaluating what life is really about. In fact, I, I suspect that's one of the reasons why I'm told that many, if you look online, you see many of the, the, the streams of uh, live streams of churches up and down the country are f- much bigger than their normal congregations. Because I think there's a, there's a kind of sense of spiritual hunger as people wrestle with what life's really about. See, David's contention here is that our problem is ultimately one of what we worship saying if you turn away from these idols, if you turn to God, you'll find lasting satisfaction. And that brings me into my second point. Treasure Christ above all things. See, the great thrust of this psalm, the great essence of what David is saying, is that the great Christian hope is not found in the idea that God will protect you from suffering. The Bible is really clear that the reality of suffering will hit all of us. In fact, the, most, the, the only innocent man who ever lived, Christ himself, experienced great suffering. So there's no, just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you're somehow uh, insulated from the suffering that affects a fallen world. 
But neither is the Bible um, suggesting that we need to approach suffering with a kind of stoicism, a kind of uh, holy denial of, of suffering. It's re- the, the Bible is real about suffering. The Psalms are full of lament and people pouring out their hearts. So there's no denial of the reality of suffering. No, the, the great reason for Christian contentment in the hardest situations is that they have the greatest gift, Christ himself. The great antidote to suffering, the great rationale for this kind of resilient contentment is that the Christian has Christ. Note the declaration in verse five and six. It's really a, 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 a moment where, where David is recognizing the rich provision that he has. Verse six, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Think about a man surveying an estate that he owns and looking at, across all the fields, saying the, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. It's a declaration of, of great joy and gladness, saying he's, I am blessed. But he's not talking about a kind of physical inheritance. He's not saying, oh, the reason I'm blessed is because God has given me all this stuff. No, in verse five, he's very clear. The Lord is my por- chosen portion and my cup. He's in effect saying, the Lord himself is my beautiful inheritance. He is my sustenance. He's my great delight and my treasure. To be a Christian is say, my greatest hope doesn't come in all the things that God's given me as good as they are and I can enjoy them. My ultimate source of contentment is that Christ himself, he is my ultimate treasure. Your ability to endure suffering as a Christian will hinge on whether you can say with the psalmist, if everything is taken away from me, I am wealthy because I have Christ. How do we know if Christ is our greatest treasure? Well, actually, I think suffering in in many ways is the, the true test of the reality of our hearts. Peter, uh, in, in 1 Peter 4, talks about the, the suffering. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he's talking about the idea of like when you put a precious metal under severe heat, a fiery trial, it starts to, to test that metal. It starts to say, is that really authentically what it claims to be? As we experience the fiery trials of life, they reveal something about the true nature of our hearts, whether Christ really is our ultimate treasure. As we lose everything, are we able to continue to say that because of Christ, I can continue to worship him without losing heart? Or were we just worshipping him for what he could give us? It's not just our suffering that reveals our true hearts. It's also our solitude. Uh, William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, put it like this. He said, uh, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. He's saying what's really going on in your heart, what you really worship is revealed when you don't have very much on. Perhaps some of you this weekend, this bank holiday uh, weekend, saying, where do you, where does your mind go when you're undistracted by the busyness of life, when your environment isn't controlling your thoughts? We often tell ourselves that the real reason that we're not really spending time with God and we don't really feel an affection towards him is because we're just so busy and everything's crowding out our time and our love for God. Actually, when we've, in this time, in this season, where many of us maybe feel a little bit less busy than normal, our evenings and weekends are certainly more empty. The tragic truth is that even with less on, recognize that it's very easy to detach from God and to live as if he isn't with us. 
Without careful attention, it's easy for our hearts to grow cold, for Christ not to be our greatest treasure, to allow ourselves to become too attached to all sorts of things, whether it be our relationships, our careers, or all sorts of things. but, But what David's saying is here, to do that will not lead to lasting contentment. He's saying only Christ is worthy of being our greatest treasure. Why is that? Well, really, the first thing I think he's describing is simply the permanence to Christ. Saying if your contentment is based on anything else, how much stuff you have, your relationship status, your joy is inherently vulnerable. Those things can be taken away from you. But but because Christ is your greatest treasure, because he is a permanent reality, a permanent fixture, your greatest joy can never be taken away from you. You have a contentment that's unshakable. It means that whatever happens to you, the great meta-narrative, the great story of your life remains the same. The details might change, where you live, what you do, even who your friends are. All sorts of things might happen. You might be separated from loved ones. But the big blocks of your life cannot be taken away from you. Saying you are Christ. You've been united with him in love. You've been headed, you're headed to spend eternity with him. No amount of suffering or difficult circumstances can change that. Ultimately, fundamentally, I think the Christian's greatest comfort is the most precious relationship in your life can never be taken away from you. In suffering, when we're suffering, the, Romans of, the words of Romans 8 take on a new power for us. He says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And of course, for the readers of that, those verses, the, 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 the members of the Roman church, these were reality. These were real prospects. They could have faced persecution. They would have experienced much distress. They were, they were living life on the edge. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So no amount of suffering can separate us from the love of Christ. Of course, you've got to see that at the very center of the Easter events that we're celebrating this weekend is the love of Christ. Because of his great love for us, Christ was willing to surrender his life on the cross. The cross is the ultimate confirmation. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever, maybe you feel isolated or fragile or whatever, there's the ultimate grounds by which you know that Christ loves you. Is because of his willingness to die for you on the cross. But it's not just the love of Christ, not just the permanence of Christ. It's also the presence of Christ. Note how David describes in verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He's describing an intimacy with God. Think about what it means to be at your right hand. It's the knowledge that Christ is with us by his spirit that sustains us through all trials. Isaiah 43, God is speaking to his people when he says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. The promise is not that he will remove us from suffering, but that he will be with us in the hardest times. Know that because God is with them, they'll walk through the fire, but the the blaze will not affect them, will not touch them. He's saying they won't be destroyed by it. They won't be poisoned by the suffering. They won't allow bitterness to turn and to change their hearts because they know that the Lord is with them. He's not abandoned them. Think about the way a small child 
brings the greater the thing that will bring a greatest comfort to a small child undoubtedly is the 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 closeness of their mother as they go through any kind of trial or whatever they go to get their injections or, or or any kind of suffering what they need most is the presence of their mother with them it's the same as christians the thing that brings us greatest comfort is the presence of our father with us the presence of the the spirit with us which we take by faith we know that the holy spirit has come to dwell in us as we follow christ as we believe in him that we know the presence of god with us the christian gospel is unique it says we worship a god who Isaiah describes as acquainted with grief. He knows suffering. He's lived it. Christ is not surprised by suffering. He underwent the greatest suffering by his death on the cross. Now he's present with us by his spirit in our suffering, whether we feel it or not. It doesn't minimize the reality of pain and, and suffering, but it makes it bearable, makes it survivable. But there's nothing passive about this. You've got to hear that, that really that what David is saying here is put Christ at your right hand. Say, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord before me. Saying because the Lord is our greatest comfort, your first priority is that he become the dominating influence in your life. It's pointless just to simply note that Christ is the greatest comfort in suffering and to recognize it a kind of theor- on a theoretical level. Actually, what David is calling us to is that the Lord become a kind of all-encompassing reality for us at the moment. Note how David describes how his heart instructs him through the night. He saturated himself in God's truth so that even at night, even as he's falling asleep, even as the anxious thoughts, many of us know that experience as we're going to sleep, the anxiety assails us, our head is spinning, maybe anxiety about loved ones, the future, no one knows the future. It's natural to feel anxious at this time in some way. But even as he's falling asleep, he's able to repeat the truth of who God is to his heart, that the Lord is his greatest comfort through suffering. And I think the great enemy that we're facing at this time actually is digital distraction. Obviously, we're grateful for the gift of technology. It's why, we can see, why you can see me at the moment. But it's so easy to become immersed in, an, in the online world, to be uh, constantly checking the news and seeing the updates about what the, uh, the calamity, the crisis around the globe, to be on, bombarded with messages or simply just to distract ourselves with all sorts of different entertainment to try and kind of detach ourselves from the anxiety that we're experiencing. And the great truth is that what you feed yourself will, will, sh- will be the thing that shapes your reality. You have far more control of what your reality is at this moment than you realise. The danger is that you end up living in an anxious world shaped by what's going on around you rather than letting Christ's overarching narrative be the thing that shapes your reality the most. The calling for us, to do, for us at this time is to do what David has described and to set the Lord always before us. Now more than ever is such a good opportunity to pursue the presence of God. To become consciously aware that Christ is with us at every moment. To spend extended time in prayer and worship. To immerse ourselves in God's word. To allow his truth to become the primary shaping influence on our lives. Some of us, many of us are, are longing for intimacy right now. We, we sometimes go and find ourselves going on social media just to kind of want to be close to people. Of course, the reality is that I think the, the greatest intimacy is to be found in Christ right now. Think about, think about, wouldn't it be wonderful at the end of this crisis 
If you can say, actually, it's through this time, through the extended time with God, as I spent time in my room, worshipping him, praying, enjoying his word and letting his truth soak into my heart as I communed with him, as I spent time with him, that actually I, I learned what it means that God is my greatest comfort, that he is the closest one. He's my closest friend. Wouldn't that be an incredible legacy from this time at home if we can learn that together? So this is an opportunity, but this is, this is the calling of the Christian life. Always to ask yourself, are there times, are there things that I'm, I'm attaching myself to, things that I'm running after? Actually, I need to separate myself from them. I need to turn away from them and instead recognize that Christ himself is my greatest treasure. But I want to bring you to the, 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 the final point. Really, this is the, the crescendo of this psalm. Because really what he's saying is, The ultimate basis for his contentment is that he has a hope beyond death. If we need, if we want to really have a a robust contentment, we need to find a contentment that is able to deal with the reality of death. It's possible to come up with all sorts of ways to navigate the day-to-day suffering of life, everyday frustrations and challenges, but that doesn't really deal with this great problem, the great enemy of death. First of all, we recognise that death is a a grim reality. It's a horrendous tragedy that you will lose loved ones in this life. But more than that, that everything you count precious, your relationships, the things that you set your hand to, your family, the experiences that enrich your life will come to an end one day. One day, the thing that we count most precious, I suspect life itself, will, will, will leave our bodies. I think this is why the coronavirus has been so painful, because we come face to face with the reality of our own mortality. It's a shock to the system because I think our culture is for many years, I suspect maybe all of us who are born kind of post-war generation, uh, we've been relatively distant from death. We've been actively engaging what one writer called the denial of death. Death felt far off and remote. You know, think about how people who died were always in hospitals or in on care homes that many of us have never even seen a dead body. Death was something that happened to other people. For the young particularly, it felt like just something completely off in the distance, irrelevant to our lives now. Coronavirus has punctured our hope. It's reminded us of the of really of the hum, of the fragility of life. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 103. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. Our lives are more fleeting than we care to admit. And actually, I think our culture has, our secular culture really has very little resources to deal with the reality of death. You hear little phrases of comfort. Uh, He's in a better place or he's looking down on you. But really often I don't think that's actually a very heartfelt belief. It's a kind of grasping for something because we cannot deal with the finality of death. Or sometimes the the response is not a kind of attempt to comfort ourselves in that way, but really a rage and anger. Dylan Thomas in his uh, poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, says, Rage, rage against the dying of the light. We're angry because there's something deeply wrong about death, but also because we recognise our impotence against death. And I think this is precisely what the psalmist is speaking to address. 
the great grounds of his joy, the basis for his declaration when he says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, is the confidence that God will not, sorry, that death will not have the final word, that he will experience the joy of the Lord forever. Verse 10, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is death. So he's saying, and corruption, let my body be destroyed. He's saying, you will not allow me to be abandoned to death. You will not let my body be destroyed. Now, at first sight, you think this must be talking about the psalm. It's talking in the first person. That's true at one level. But really, the main meaning is that David, who is the king of Israel, is looking forward hundreds of years into the future speaking about a future king of Israel, his, his bodily descendant. He's describing Christ, the true king of Israel who would come after him. You see this when Peter, the apostle Peter, is addressing the crowds in Jerusalem. Uh, it's about 40 days after Christ's de- uh, death and resurrection. And, uh, it's this, it's, and well, he says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about, he's speaking about this psalm, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying, well, he can't be talking about himself because we know that the David has, has died and buried. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Saying so we know David is dead and buried, he can't be speaking about himself saying he foresaw the great event at the center of the Christian faith of Christ's resurrection, that David is prophetically describing the Holy One, the true Holy One, the only one who is truly holy, Christ himself, who's sinless, that though he would die, he would not be abandoned to death. His body would not be destroyed. Instead, three days later, he would rise again. And this is no vague, comforting idea from a kind of ethereal land, It's not an ahistorical account. It's talking about real events witnessed. He talks about it being attested to by witnesses. First of all, he's talking about the disciples, Peter and the disciples himself. It was witnessed also by hundreds of others. But really the the great reality is that these disciples were transformed by what they saw in the risen Christ. They went from a fearful uh, bunch hiding in a room, probably fearful of the fact that they would be, um, you know, their leader had just been crucified. So maybe thinking about the consequences for themselves, maybe thinking about their own lives. They went from a fearful bunch, but they were, they were transformed when they saw the risen Christ. They were turned instead to a, a bunch of, of men who were willing, despite their lack of education, despite their lack of social standing, to preach this Christ crucified and risen throughout the Roman Empire. Even in Jerusalem, the very place where Christ had been crucified, they were willing to go and preach his, resur- his re- crucifixion and resurrection. How can you believe that, you might say? How can you believe in the resurrection? Well, actually, in a sense, it's its unlikelihood that gives it significance. Dead men don't rise. To rise, Christ cannot be a mere man. It's the ultimate vindication that Christ is God in the flesh. But we have good reason to believe it's true. There are a number of things that give me that, that confidence. First of all, the resurrection accounts have a ring of authenticity about them. They specifically detail that the first people to witness the resurrection were women. 
And that's exactly what you, the opposite of what you would do if you were writing a fabricated account. At the time, a woman's testimony wasn't even recognized in a court of law. And yet the gospel records them as the first witnesses to the resurrection. It has that kind of inconvenient truth to it that it means that it has to be tr- a true account. You wouldn't make it up like that. The disciples claim that they saw Jesus alive, but more than that, they were willing to die for this fact. You might die for something that possibly is true or not, but I don't think anyone would be willing to die for something they know isn't true. And they were in a unique position to know whether it's true or not. So the very fact that they were willing to die for it means they were certain of this reality. They were certain that they'd seen the risen Christ. They had no motive to, to, uh, to lie and to propagate this tiny, insignificant movement. Psychologists have rejected any notion of a kind of mass hallucination where they were all convinced at the same time. No, the most compelling explanation is they actually appeared to them in bodily form. And more than that, this news then spread, this movement transformed the Roman Empire such that thousands came to believe in the risen Christ. But the great precious truth of this resurrection is it's not just Christ who's resurrected. As Christ has defeated death, so too will all who believe in him be resurrected when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. The Christians can say with the psalmist, you will not abandon your holy one, talking about themselves, to corruption. I will be raised with Christ. It's not some ethereal existence of living on clouds somewhere. No, it's that Christ will, retain, will return to reign fully on the earth. There'll be a time when evil is destroyed, where there's no more sin or destruction, where death, the final enemy, is destroyed. And the distance between man and God is destroyed, that God's people will see him face to face. And actually, this radically approaches our, uh, changes our approach to death now. The Christian believer has been liberated from the fear of death. The great spectre that hangs over humanity has been banished for all who believe in Christ. In Hebrews 2, it describes how Christ has not only destroyed death, but he will deliver all those through fear of death were subject to, li- to lifelong slavery. Describing a kind of slavery of being controlled by the fear of death. And when we look hard enough, I think we can see this slavery in a number of ways. It's saying we, the, where we're controlled by this fear of the reality of death. Think about our modern health obsession, health anxiety, the fear of being sick or obsession with maintaining our health. Actually, of course, physical exercise is no bad thing. But behind that health anxiety, behind that obsession with our bodies, I think it's sometimes linked to a a fear of death, a vain attempt to try and put off the inevitable. Sometimes you see this fear of death in a kind of ceaseless activity. We want to make our lives count. We know that we only live once, so we exhaust ourselves in, in a pursuit of accolades and achievements that will tell us that our short, brief time on this earth was worth it. Or even just that we're distracting ourselves from this great reality. Much of modern life, I think, is an attempt to distract ourselves from the reality of our own mortality. Uh, Glenn Scrivener puts it this way. He says, we are the flotsam of a cosmic explosion. And he's talking about the secular worldview here. Of a cosmic explosion of biological survival machines, wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. And then he describes the way we might try and attempt to ignore that. Still, all that being said, the new flavoured latte from Starbucks is incredible. And have you tried hot yoga? We're we're renovating the kitchen too. So, you know, that's nice. As As the annihilating tsunami of time bears down on us, we obsess over our sandcastles, the promotion, the holiday, the new gadget, and we dare not look up. 
We try all sorts of ways of dealing with the reality of death, ignoring it, delaying it, raging against it, denying it. But none of these can adequately deal with the reality. And yet the Christian is liberated from all these responses. They can look at the reality and even recognize the tragedy. But in the face of death, they can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In the words of Paul. The great antidote to the the fear of death that stalks our land is the knowledge that Christ has defeated death. And this gave the early Christian movement incredible power. Witness the way that martyrs are willing to lay down their lives for the cause of Christ, to be persecuted and even to suffer death. Why? Because they had no fear that this was the end. And this uh, this is how the early Christian thinker Ambrose summed up the difference. Let there be this difference between the servants of Christ and the worshippers of idols, that the latter weep for their friends who they suppose to have perished forever. But for us whom death is the end, not of this nature, but of this life only, let the advent of death wipe away all tears. And yet the great promise of this is not just life after death. The ultimate hope is, he's describing is that his joy in God will continue forever. Even death will not separate him from the greatest source of his joy. The ultimate hope of the Christian is not just the end of death. No, it's at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Christian need not fear death because it cannot separate us from our greatest treasure, the presence of Christ. We live in a fallen world with much suffering, But we have the wonderful hope that a day is coming when we'll be reunited with Christ and live for eternity with him. And this is the promise for all who believe in him. I want to conclude with just one or two final thoughts. If you're you're not a Christian here, you have to hear that all of what I've described, the great hope of the resurrection, this unshakable joy, the permanence of Christ's love, the knowledge that Christ is present with you, the, the, the deep comfort that brings to the Christian, that all of that is in the person of Christ. It's for those who believe in him. So in a sense, if, if you're not with Christ, then you're separate, separated from that great hope. And yet this, there is an invitation to this hope for you too. Perhaps you've seen that right now that the things you put your trust in are more fragile than you realised. Really what I want to encourage, give you an invitation is there's an invitation to turn to Christ, to surrender your life to follow him, to receive his offer of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, to receive eternal life, the promise that there is an answer to the great problem of death. I just invite you to, to respond to God in your own way at home just by simply inviting him into your life. To, to pray a prayer, asking him forgiveness and surrendering your life over to him. And yet for the Christian, there is great source of hope and joy this, this, this morning. You have the permanent promise of Christ's love. You have the promise of Christ's presence with you. You have a hope that cannot be destroyed. And one day, the promise that one day the great enemy of death will be destroyed. You have a treasure that cannot be plundered, a joy that will last forevermore as you put God at your right hand. You have every ground for contentment, every means to walk through the the darkest storms of life. Let me pray and then the guys will come up and lead us in worship. Lord, we want to thank you for this, this great victory that we're celebrating this morning, that you have punched a hole through death, that you've destroyed death 
that a day is coming where there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or suffering, and that we have the great promise of your presence with us now. Lord, we just want to thank you for that privilege. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you with us as we walk through this season. Help us to pursue you in this time. Help us to love you, to make you our greatest treasure, to recognize that everything else in life, all the things that we treasured before, they're nothing compared to knowing you, that you are our sweetest delight, that your love is better than life. Lord, we just want to come to you now and celebrate that. Celebrate all the gifts that you've given us, but most of all, celebrate you, Christ, that you are our greatest gift. Amen.